0: Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. Today we are talking about the latest lawsuit filed from the Rust Set tragedy. This is the wrongful death suit filed by the representative for Helena Hutchins and her family. So we are going to break down that lawsuit, talk about what the two causes of actions are, talk about how this is different than the criminal investigation that is still ongoing. The weapon or the gun used in this case is still out with the FBI for processing, which is why the criminal investigation hasn't been closed yet. And there's, there's just a few things to talk about in this new lawsuit and the things it supports with the other lawsuits that we've covered. So I'll do a brief road so far of this case and the multitude, the plethora, if you will, of lawsuits that have been filed. And then we'll do a look into this particular lawsuit, which is quite well written. I'm not surprised it was filed. I'm a little surprised it didn't just settle before, but there's a lot of players here. So maybe that's an unrealistic hope because there are a lot of individuals in this suit and we will go through all of it. So with how much we're getting into today, we should really just get into it hey there welcome to the emily show i'm your host emily d baker badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about i've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years i'm a former prosecutor and i'm a big fan of the cursey words so let's break it down Before we go any further, a huge thanks to this episode's sponsor, Manscaped. Manscaped makes not just the cheeky advertisements that you might be aware of, not just the ball deodorizer, and I didn't know that product was a thing, but the men in my life have said that they appreciate it. Not just the lawnmower 4 that takes care of all of the hair down there that you might need taken care of, but has a light on it and seems to understand that we need illumination when we are self-grooming, which I personally appreciate. But they also make a wide variety of other care products, everything from chapstick to a delightful body wash that not only feels really good on the skin, but just smells delightful. It just smells delightful. How many times can I say delightful? At least four more really does smell yummy. Not only that, but there's also really great hair care product. So you can use Manscaped for all your needs. Here's one of the things I really like about their hair and body wash is they come in aluminum packaging so they can be easily recycled, which is just something I dig. It also feels weighty in the shower. So it doesn't just get slid off of the shower shelf by my kids because my kids use that body wash and it smells delightful, but I really like the packaging too. I think you will enjoy not just the cheekiness of Manscaped, but the wide variety of products. And if you don't yet have a lawnmower for just trust your girl, this it's not just for men. I've tried numerous trimmers. This one is my favorite. Have I mentioned the nose hair trimmer recently? I don't think I have. I love it so much. I love it so much. Look, hair grows places that nose hair trimmer is fantastic. It's fantastic. So go ahead and use code lawnard for 20% off plus free shipping. That's right. Just go to manscaped.com. Use code lawnard for 20% off and free shipping. Did I mention that that's my exclusive offer? Go check it out. And if you're, if you're feeling feisty, let me know on social media what you ordered from Manscape and how you're liking it. I can't wait to hear we should get back into t- we should get back into all of today's things because there are things we should trust. So as we get into this lawsuit, I'm gonna do a brief road so far leading up to this particular lawsuit because there is now, as I said, a plethora of civil lawsuits. There, there's not a shock that there is. Um And I've broken all of those down. So I will link those all in the show notes or in the description box, depending on if you're listening on the podcast or if you are here on the YouTubes. So brief road so far, the, Timeline of events we're going to go through in the wrongful death lawsuit today, but this all came from, of course, the fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust on October 21st, 2021 uh, by Alec Baldwin. The criminal investigation is still open and ongoing, and there's been some new statements about that, actually, that I'm just going to bring up right now because this is really the proper place for them because we're going to talk a little bit about Alec Baldwin's ABC interview Um, just tangentially as it relates to this wrongful death lawsuit or as it comes up in the wrongful death lawsuit. But we're not going to really dive into it because I've already done a video breaking down that interview, which again will be linked below. But the district attorney in Santa Fe um, came out on February 19th, 2022, which as I'm sitting here recording it is, um, you know, today, (laughs) No, I think the statement was made on Friday, February 18th. Today's February 19th. Days are funny um, how they just kind of blur right now for me. But she made a statement that she and her team did kind of a recreation of whether this weapon could fire without the trigger being pulled, a la Alec Baldwin's statement in that ABC interview that he was pulling the hammer back and then the gun went off. But the actual weapon from that day is with the fbi so they were using a similar weapon saying that they found that there is a potential um that a similar weapon could have gone off without the the trigger being pulled with just the um hammer being pulled back we will see what the fbi determines with this weapon but that's part of why The criminal investigation is still open because the FBI is doing the weapon analysis to determine the functionality of that weapon, if it was functioning properly, if it was functioning in a faulty way, and whether that plays into if anyone has criminal liability for the death of Helena Hutchins and the shooting or the assault with a deadly weapon, as it would be, of the director, Joel Souza. In that same statement, the DA also indicated that they still won't know for several more months if any criminal charges will be filed. And it's interesting because this all became much more muddy for me after we saw the lawsuit from Rust Armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. It raised a lot more questions about just what was going on on that set. And this wrongful death suit adds to that. When the wrongful death lawsuit was filed, on February 15th, 2022, the attorneys that filed it also held a press conference. They also released a recreation video. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the lawsuit, but we are not done with our road so far. We tangented, but we are not done since the incident, the tragedy, the shooting, I will probably interchange what I call it. This whole case makes me so sad because it's so, so avoidable. It just it's such a tragic accident. It doesn't mean somebody won't be criminally liable, but this is such a tragic accident that more and more seems like it was born out of negligence, whether that will be criminal negligence or civil negligence, a live bullet doesn't end up on a movie set without somebody being negligent. In my opinion, it just seems like, well, how would that happen? That's not supposed to happen. So something went wrong here. But with that, we had multiple lawsuits filed a lawsuit filed. Um, in November, 2021, by Serge Svetnoy, the uh, key grip, I believe, or the gaffer, then a lawsuit filed by the script supervisor, Mimi Mitchell, then a lawsuit filed by armor, Hannah Gutierrez Reed, just in January, 2022. During that time, we know that there are ongoing search warrants, search warrants issued for Baldwin's phone, which he finally turned over. Then Baldwin making several statements Um, in different forms, one or two on Instagram, statements on ABC, clearly when he sat down with George Stephanopoulos, and then statements made uh, closer in time to the shooting in a roadside interview with paparazzi. Then we get to February 15th, where this wrongful death lawsuit is filed. So a wrongful death lawsuit can be pursued whether or not there is a criminal investigate or not a criminal investigation, there is a criminal investigation, but whether or not there are criminal charges. So you don't have to have a criminal charge for there to be a wrongful death lawsuit. Sometimes we will see criminal charges go first and then a wrongful death lawsuit, but that is not required in any way. That is not what the law forces to happen. So in New Mexico, the wrongful death lawsuit needs to be brought by a personal representative. So you will see in this lawsuit that one of the plaintiffs is a personal representative for Helena Hutchins. It's not her spouse or her child on behalf of her. So it's brought by three plaintiffs. And we'll talk about that in just a minute when I pull this up on screen. Um, In New Mexico, the wrongful death can be brought um, if there is a negligent or default of another, so a, a negligent act of another. And if it was under circumstances where someone could have been um, sued for an assault or a battery, had they not died for the injury or the harm, if they had not died, then they can bring a wrongful death suit. That can also happen if what happened would be a felony As well, So if there's like a felony assault that's charged, you can bring a wrongful death suit. But if you could have also brought a civil suit, had the person survived and sued civilly, then you can also bring a wrongful death suit. I tried to parse that down and make it very clear. The statute in New Mexico is very thickly written. So it makes it a little difficult to parse through, which is why I tried to just, um, simplify that statute. The second cause of action that we're going to talk about is loss of consortium. A lot of people who are familiar with loss of consortium will be like, isn't that the one for like the adulty sexy time things? It's not just that loss of consortium or the loss of the loss of another person. And it's that pain and suffering damages for the loss of your person is what it really is. The loss of their companionship, their guidance. Um, But yes, also adult relations but loss of consortium can also in some states be brought by siblings in some states uh well in most states be brought by children um be brought by spouses sometimes you can have loss of consortium brought by parents so it just it really is that losing of your person and accounting for in a monetary way cuz that's generally what civil lawsuits are for for that loss um and the pain and suffering of that loss and the acknowledgment that you would have had that person throughout the rest of your life, especially when we look at a, a child or a spouse, the plan is like, hey, in this case, they will talk about what factors lean in here, but hey, this was my person. And there is a compensatory measure for the loss of that person. And this is one of the things that always sat weird with me in law school when going through um, these kind of plaintiff and tortious causes of actions is talking about what the value of a life is and these strange calculations of well how much money could this person have made throughout the rest of their life and and what is the value of losing your person what is the what is the price tag on a 9 year old losing their mother it's such a strange part of law to talk about but at the end of the day a jury will have to go through those measures lawyers will have to go through those measures these are conversations that will have to be had and it's really hard to have those conversations, um, we've had way too many of them at this household in the last few years, um, and my friends have as well. The losses over the last few years feel like they have just been been mounting, and it's, it's challenging. But these are, I mean, they're conversations that you need to have whether or not there's a wrongful death lawsuit. Um, and that's something, again, we've been dealing with in our life is you have to plan for what happens if something happens to you. And even in your 40s, even in your 30s, even when in your 20s, even when you're just married, but particularly when you have children, um, making sure those things are taken care of and discussed. And it's hard to do, but it's really hard to do when somebody's gone. And with that, we're just going to talk about today's uh second sponsor. And then we are going to move into this lawsuit because again, it is really difficult and strange stuff to talk about, but unfortunately, um, it is a part of life. A big thank you to today's sponsor, Policy Genius. As I get older and as I cover more of these cases, it always brings up, well, maybe this is a lawyer brain, I don't know, but it always brings up the adulty things in life that we don't always think about. Things like life insurance, is your family going to be provided for if something happens to you or your partner? And that's generally where my brain stops and gets totally overwhelmed with where do you even start with that? And Policy Genius has a solution. They are not an insurance company. They're an insurance broker that works for you to fit you with the policy that best meets your needs. You're like, Emily, how does that work? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, Policy Genius is a one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance that you need. You can check out the link in the description down below, or head to PolicyGenius.com/Lawnard and answer just a few questions in minutes. You can compare personalized quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. You could save fifty percent or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Yes, fifty percent or more. A team of licensed experts at Policy Genius can help you every step of the way because they're there for you to make sure that you find the insurance coverage that best fits your needs. And they will help you every step of the way until you're covered. One of the things I really appreciate about Policy Genius is that they don't sell your data to third parties. They don't add on extra fees. And since 2014, they have helped over 30 million people shop For insurance, so if you're like, okay, it's time to do the adulty things, head to policygenius.com/slash lonard or use the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. Thank you again for sponsoring this episode of the Emily Show, Policy Genius. We should get back into today's case, and with that, let's get into this wrongful death lawsuit again. This whole situation just makes me sad. Uh. And it, it, it hits different, like Helena Hutchins and I are around the same age. Her child and my youngest child are right there at the same age. And it just, and again, when I go through this and I will try objectively to talk about both sides, it is hard because some of the things that are alleged, and these are just allegations, but we're seeing them in lawsuit after lawsuit now, is just so fucking avoidable. Just just do what you're supposed to do. And they're alleging that they didn't. And again, it's a lawsuit. So these are allegations. There's no shade in this lawsuit, which is appropriate with the solemnity of a wrongful death suit. It is a very well-written suit. Um, And again, they held a press conference to explain the suit And to share a video that they constructed almost like an accident reconstruction style video with 3D rendering of what um, they believe happened. Now, will that ever see the inside of a courtroom? Probably not. I don't know if it could be authenticated to show that that rendering or that 3D version, that video version of What happened is really what happened, but they went to quite some length and expense to try to piece together what happened here. I don't know if that was to try to settle the suit, to send it out to all these defendants and be like, look, this is what we believe happened. And what we should do is just settle this before it ever gets out into the public. If it was something that it was like, hey, law enforcement, look, this is how we see it, what is taking so long? Or if it was really just to share with the public, this is our. This is how we view the events that happen. But either way, I will link that down below. And I would love to hear what you think if you've watched that video that's put together by the attorneys or if you do watch it, because I've never seen a reconstruction like that in a non-criminal case. I'm sure there are cases where it happens in court, um, but I've not seen it at the filing of a case. So I found that very interesting. Let's get into this suit. This is brought in Santa Fe by Matthew Hutchins. Individually and on behalf of his son, Andros Hutchins, a minor child, and Christina Martinez as the wrongful death personal representative for Helena Hutchins. Again, that's required under New Mexico statute that it's brought by a personal representative. Let's get into all of the defendants. And if you're like, wait, who is that person? I'll explain below when we get into who everybody is. Some of them you will know, some of them are other producers generally. But Alexander R. Baldwin III, Rust Movie Productions LLC, El Dorado Pictures, Ryan Donnell Smith, Langley Alan Cheney, Thomasville Pictures LLC, Nathan Kling, Klinger, K L I N G H E R, Klinger, um, Ryan Winstrin, Winstrine, Winstein, Winterstein. Emily, why is it so hard to pronounce names? I don't know. But between the ADHD and the dyslexia, Pronouncing things is hard, and names I've never heard pronounced before is hard. Sometimes when I've heard them pronounced, it's hard. It's just something I will always struggle with, and I've just accepted that. Ryan Winterstein, Short Porch Pictures, LLC, um, and Jewel Ningham, Brittany House Pictures, Matthew Del Piano, Del, yeah, we're going with that. Calvary Media Inc., Ryan Dente-Smith, Gabriel Pickle, Third Shift Media, LLC, Sarah Zachary, and you're like, oh, this sounds like we're getting into the uh, props department. Yes. Seth Kinney, PDQ Arm and Prop LLC, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, David Halls, Catherine Walters, Chris M.B. Sharp, Jennifer Lamb, Emily Slabson, S-L-V-E-S-O-N, Slabson, um, Streamline Global. So those are the business entities and individuals that are being sued for the wrongful death and we will get into what their theory of each because we will because the lawsuit actually goes through it really really well and thoroughly their basic summary is that on october 21st defendant alec baldwin recklessly shot and killed helena hutchins on the set of the movie rust what's interesting to me and this is maybe just me being particular is that they do name him as alexander r baldwin but then just default to calling him alec without setting up why they are calling him alec i think we're all well enough familiar that it's not confusing but I always point the things out when I see them. Defendant Baldwin and others in this case failed to perform industry standard safety checks and follow basic gun safety rules while using real guns to produce the movie rust with fatal consequences. I think that is the best summary of this case that's been put to paper. Definitely better than any of my summaries. And that's, that's what their allegations are. They failed to perform industry safety, and follow basic gun safety. Because if they had followed basic gun safety in this case, there's no question in my mind, if you hadn't pointed this weapon at somebody, even if it had been loaded with the live round, that there is lots of questions about where it came from. If it wasn't pointed at anyone, it's a lot less likely that someone is going to be killed if a weapon's not pointed at them. Yes, it can still happen, but it is much, much less likely that it will, especially considering they were within four feet of each other. Helena Hutchins deserved to live, it goes on to say, and the defendants had the power to prevent her death if they had only held sacrosanct, sacrosanct, Emily, their duty to protect the safety of every individual on a set where firearms are present instead of cutting corners on safety procedures where human lives are at, were at stake rushing to stay on schedule, and ignoring numerous complaints of safety violations. And that does track with what has been said in other lawsuits and what has been said in numerous media articles um, from people who were on set saying we raised these concerns, though Alec Baldwin denies that he knew those concerns had been raised. Numerous sources have said these concerns were raised on set, and this lawsuit details some of those as well. They go through the Jurisdiction and venue. Everyone being sued as a part of the production of Rust. The production was happening in New Mexico when this happened. So I think it's not going to be hard to say that everyone has availed themselves of jurisdiction in New Mexico because they were operating, operating in New Mexico to create this film. I'm not uh, concerned about that. They then get through who everybody is. Uh, defendant Baldwin is the lead actor, but is also listed as a producer, and contributing writer of the film, and that he was an owner, member, managing member, director, officer, employee, and or agent of El Dorado Pictures and was acting in a capacity on behalf of himself, El Dorado Pictures, and other defendants. For the Rust production, El Dorado Pictures is a corporation. Rust Movie Productions is a corporation. Defendant Ryan Donnell Smith was a producer for Rust and is also a owner, managing member, et cetera, et cetera, of Thomasville Pictures. Langley Allen Cheney is a executive producer for the movie and is also a owner, member, director of defendant Thomasville Pictures, LLC. Once they get into discovery, they'll know exactly how everybody's related to these companies. So they've just pled it very broadly because, because they don't have all that information yet. Thomasville Pictures is a Georgia-based studio specializing in creating low-budget films. They go on to say that Nathan Klinger is a producer for the Rust production and is a owner, member, managing member, et cetera, et cetera, of defendant Short Porch Pictures. Ryan Winterstein is a producer for Rust and is also part of Short Porch Pictures. Short Porch Pictures, LLC. Why is that hard to say? It just is. Try it yourself. Short Porch Pictures and say it multiple times. But Short Porch Pictures, SPP, is a production studio specializing in creating low-budget film products, including Rust. They get Anjul Ningham, A-N-J-U-L, Anjul Ningham is an individual who is a producer for Rust and a owner member, et cetera, et cetera, of Britney House Productions. Britney House Productions was involved in producing the Rust film. Matthew Del Piano is a producer for the Rust film and is a member, owner, et cetera, et cetera, of Defendant Calvary Media. Calvary Media is a production company involved in the production of Rust. Ryan Dente-Smith is a supervising unit production manager for Rust and a owner member at all, at et, et cetera, of Defendant Third Shift Media LLC. Gabriel Pickle is a line producer for Rust and was also involved with Third Shift Media LLC. Catherine Walters was a unit production manager and is also involved with the company Third Shift LLC. Third Shift LLC is a production company, Uh, contracted by the Rust production defendants to provide production services. Defendant Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is the armorer. They go on to say an armorer is generally in charge of firearms and ammunition used in production, and defendant was contracted by the Rust production to provide armorer services and equipment, including ammunition, which we did not hear in Hannah Gutierrez-Reed's lawsuit because that was all put on Seth Kinney, but Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is suing Seth Kinney. Defendant Sarah Zachary was the props master. Her name came up quite a bit in the lawsuit between the armor and Seth Kinney, the prop house owner, and, well, we'll get into him. He's next. Defendant Seth Kinney is the armor assistant and or the armor mentor for the rust production and is the owner of PDQ Arm and Prop LLC. PDQ Arm and Prop was a business engaged in the business of assembling, labeling, marketing, promoting, packaging, advertising, and distributing props and uh, to production companies in New Mexico, including Rust. Defendant Dave Halls was the first assistant director, first AD for the Rust production. Um, they say that the first AD is generally responsible for managing the schedule and coordination of the cast and crew to ensure that a shoot runs smoothly. That sounds like a very difficult job. <laughs> that sounds like a very hard thing to do. Defendant Halls was also the safety mentor for the film. Interesting that there are mentors set out here. Um, I don't know if that's common on a on a set. It's not something I had heard of done, that there are mentors for the film set and safety mentors for the film set. Shouldn't there, shouldn't there just be a safety officer or something? Defendant Chris M.B. Sharp was an executive producer for the Rust production. Jennifer Lamb was an executive producer for the production. Emily Slavelson was an executive producer. The Streamline Global was a motion picture development and finance company involved in the production of Rust. And then they get into the venue and jurisdiction. They list the producers as Baldwin, Smith, Cheney, Klinger, uh, Winterstein, Ningham, Del Piano, Dente Smith, Defendant Pickle, Walters, Sharp, Lamb, and Slavison. And then the Rust production companies are all the companies together uh, that we previously listed. And then we get into the factual allegations. The first factual allegation is that a revolver is a deadly weapon. It is designed to inflict severe bodily harm or death. The defendants chose to use real firearms for the feature film production, Rust, a gun-heavy Western film being shot at the Bonanza Creek Ranch near Santa Fe, New Mexico, despite the danger inherent in any use of real firearms. They go on to allege that because firearms are inherently dangerous, the movie industry has adopted clear and strict safety protocols for the use of firearms to ensure that no one ever be injured during the production of a movie. And those safety protocols, it seems that it will not be difficult if this goes to trial. It probably won't, but if it did, that the safety protocols would be fairly industry standard and well-known and that it wouldn't be difficult to bring in people who know those to talk about those and then bring in people from the set to talk about what happened on this set. It either is or it isn't. You either adhered to the protocols or you didn't. It's not going to be um, super great, at least as I see it based on what's alleged here. Of course, more information could change my mind. They go on to say that the Rust production was responsible for the safe use of firearms on set. I don't think that's a, a stretch or a reach in any way. I think that is an accurate recitation of whose responsibility it was, the productions. Every member of the production cast and crew alike was at all times required to follow industry protocols and adhere to basic gun safety rules. Defendants Baldwin, the producers, and the rest production companies breached the most basic rules of firearm use on a film production. The basic rules for safe gun handling include, and then they list them out, A, always treat a gun as if it were loaded, something we've you know We've been talking about as law nerds here since this happened. You don't point a gun at somebody and you always treat it as if it's loaded. Never point a gun at anything the operator of the gun, in this case, Defendant Baldwin, doesn't intend to destroy. Always keep the gun pointed in a safe direction and never at yourself or anyone else. Always keep a gun unloaded unless it's absolutely necessary to load the gun for use on a scene. And then and only then, a qualified person acting as the weapons master or armorer should load the gun. Never place a finger on the trigger unless the operator is ready to shoot. Be sure of the person's target and what is behind it. Learn the mechanical and handling characteristics of the particular gun being used. Load the gun in front of the actors or crew who may be in the line of fire, meaning the gun gets loaded where they are standing ready to do a scene. Uh, Personally perform or observe a visual inspection of the gun to ensure no ammunition is contained in the cartilage. Um, Cartridge. Sorry. Cartridge. Me thinking of my new ear piercing. They go on to allege the rules for rust production's use of the revolver by defendant Baldwin required training for defendant Baldwin and the presence on site of an expert in the safe handling of firearms to enforce proper safety protocols and train others in such safety protocols and the safe handling of firearms. This comes up In the Hannah Gutierrez-Reed lawsuit. And it also came up in the search warrant for Baldwin. Talking about the fact that Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Was not inside the the abandoned church. Where this scene was being blocked out. That in her lawsuit. She breaks down all of the things that had happened that day. As to why she wasn't in that building. But she was told it wasn't a rehearsal. She was uh, told she didn't need to be in there the video village where you would normally see what's being done inside a location was taken down because of the people who had walked off a set over they say safety concerns and baldwin denies that but the people who had walked off a set the camera operators that day had taken their own equipment with them so it was all of these factors that led to her not being there but it's also the responsibility of the producers and the ad to say no there is a gun on set the armor has to be in the building someone else can be outside of the building They go on to say that the armorer must be responsible for loading and unloading the firearms and must check the firearms before and after each instance, which they are handled, that the movie involved the extensive use of firearms and required an experienced firearms expert with the skill and qualifications to maintain constant vigilance for safety matters, notwithstanding the numerous firearms present on the set of Rust and the frequency of their use to fire cartridges in simulated gunfights. They say that defendant Hannah Gutierrez Reed was an inexperienced weapons master with only one movie production under her belt, unqualified for the degree of skill required on the set of Rust." They go on to say that defendant Baldwin and the other producers were aware that defendant Gutierrez-Reed was unqualified and they ignored Gutierrez-Reed's concerns that performing the dual roles of armorer and assistant prop master would result in lapses in basic firearm safety. Defendant Baldwin and others ignored actual unintentional firearm discharges that had occurred on the set of rust as a direct consequence of failures of Gutierrez Reed to adequately perform her duties as armorer and did not replace Gutierrez Reed with a qualified armor or require additional safety procedures to correct the dangerous conditions on the rust set despite multiple written complaints about the danger. And that is going to factor very heavily into this case and who knew what when and what duties were breached because there were issues on set before this day. And they go on to tell us more about that. The next paragraph says that the most basic firearm safety rule in the movie industry is that there must never be live ammunition on a movie set, as live ammunition could mistakenly be loaded into a gun. Industry standards and the Bonanza Creek location's rules specifically forbade the use of live ammunition containing bullets on the set of Rust, where bullets that appear to be real are required for cinematic purposes, quote, unquote, dummy bullets that typically contain a BB are used which are distinguishable from live ammunition upon visual inspection and or by shaking to hear the BB inside. And we hear talk about that in the search warrant and in Hannah Gutierrez reads lawsuit where she talks about how she checked, but she doesn't talk in her lawsuit about shaking each individual piece of ammunition. She talks about shaking the box when that new box of ammunition just mysteriously showed up on set, all full and stuff. They go on to say in this lawsuit that the live bullet that killed Helena Hutchins was present on the set of rust at the time of the shooting and was not detected prior to its discharge due to the failure of the defendants to follow industry standard safety protocols and perform basic firearm safety checks. They say that at the time of the shooting, defendant Baldwin Hutchins and other crew members were doing a quote unquote lineup of a shootout scene in an old abandoned church. The sole purpose of the lineup for the scene was confirming the positioning frame and focus of the camera for a close-up shot of defendant baldwin's hand and the revolver he was holding but defendant baldwin's possession of a real revolver let alone a revolver loaded with any ammunition at all was unnecessary to achieve this purpose the scene in question did not even call for the revolver to be held by baldwin to be fired and that's something we've heard multiple times not in baldwin's interview but we've heard it in other lawsuits and other media reports that this scene did not require the weapon to be fired. So his hand shouldn't have been on the hammer or on the trigger in Baldwin's ABC interview. He said that he was showing that to Hutchins. This doesn't seem to indicate that that was something he was asked to do. But again, that just might be a a difference in remembrance, but it also might be that for the purposes of this lawsuit, it's not relevant to them at this point. They go on to talk about exactly what happened. And say that defendant bought well what they allege happened i need to say not what happened what this lawsuit alleges happened to make it clear um, defendant baldwin was sitting on the church pew at bonanza creek location approximately four feet away from multiple members of the crew of rust when he reached across his body and used his right hand to grab the revolver holstered on his left side, drew the revolver with a cross body movement across his body and aimed it directly at Ms. Hutchins while drawing back the hammer on the revolver. He released the revolver's hammer and bam, I'm reading from the lawsuit still. This is not my interpretation. This is me reading from the lawsuit. It says, bam, defendant Baldwin fired the revolver. It goes on to say the live bullet discharge from defendant Baldwin's revolver struck Hutchins in the side of her chest, ricocheted throughout her body, causing grievous injury and exited her body with sufficient force to strike director Joel Souza in the shoulder and pass almost entirely through his body. Ms. Hutchins endured enormous pain and suffering and then died from her wounds. It goes on to say that defendant Baldwin producers and the production companies were aware of firearm safety issues that occurred and did not take action to correct the situation and ensure that basic gun safety rules were followed. They say that had Baldwin, the producers and the companies taken adequate precautions to ensure firearm safety on the set, that this would not have happened and that Helena Hutchins would be alive and well, hugging her husband and her nine-year-old son. The next section of this lawsuit talks about cost cutting on the set and is titled Defendants' Aggressive Cost-Cutting Endangered the Rust Cast and Crew. They say that the rust production company utilized aggressive cost-cutting practices during rust production that jeopardized and endangered the safety of the cast and crew. Those measures included hiring inexperienced and unqualified armorers and weapons masters, requiring the armorer to split time as the assistant props masters, aggressively adhering to unreasonably rushed production schedules, hiring unqualified and inexperienced crew and staff, That were responsible for the safety during the production. They go on to say that, or to allege that on October 6, 2021, the cast and crew of Rust began shooting the film. The script included numerous scenes involving the presence of firearms and simulated gunfights. Rather than using computer generated or digital effects together with prop guns that were not capable of firing ammunition, the Rust production companies and producers decided to use real live firearms. The aggressive cost-cutting measures of the production companies resulted in the production being riddled with breaches of safety protocols that resulted in the presence of live ammunition on the set. And if you want more of the wild allegations about how that happened, um, that is in the Armour lawsuit. And there is a lot that is alleged in that lawsuit. So that will be linked down below. How that live ammo got on set is still a big question mark for me and others. And I'm sure for law enforcement, I'm very curious to see what their investigation turns up. We are still waiting. They go on to say that on two separate occasions prior to the shooting of Ms. Hutchins, guns on the rust production have been discharged in an unsafe matter while loaded with ammunition. It does not say live ammunition. This can be um, dummy rounds or blanks it doesn't say dummy rounds, it says ammo. I, I am not assuming live. I am assuming blanks. If there had been lives detected before, I have to assume that this wouldn't have happened. And that's why it does not say live ammunition, it just says ammunition. Um, so I interpret that to mean blanks because of the way that it's worded. And that is something that we saw alleged, not just in numerous articles, but also in other lawsuits. They say that in response to these weapon discharges and inadequate firearm inspections, crew members of the production made complaints about the safety on the set to supervisors including the executive producers and line producers these complaints were ignored the producers held no safety meetings which is shocking to me and maybe it's cuz i listened to too much of the office ladies podcast which i love but they talk about having like multiple candles on set and they had a safety meeting for it and 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 just the people that i know that have worked on sets of everything from you know, commercials to TV shows to reality TV to movies, you have safety meetings when things are happening. Um, And so to know that most productions are holding safety meetings when you're doing a stunt that involves anything and that this movie involving live weapons is not holding safety meetings just kind of shocked my conscience a little bit. I was like, wait, that doesn't make any sense at all. But in this lawsuit, they're alleging that that is due to pushing a, um, a, a very hectic schedule and a very tight schedule. And it reads to me as if the pushing of the schedule and pushing of the shoot days is part of why safety meetings weren't held to keep on schedule, but safety first, I guess is maybe not what's happening here. I mean, obviously, um, cause we know how it resulted. It's just staggering to me that they're alleging that no safety meetings were held. They said that they took, they production took no action to prevent further unsafe handling of firearms. They did not suspend the production to investigate the weapons discharges or the inadequate adherence to safety protocols. Instead, the producers decided to go full steam ahead and rush the filming of the production to keep costs down. And we saw in the Hannah Gutierrez Reed lawsuit texts between her and Seth Kinney, where she was talking about a miss or a discharge or a misfire from the other prop person, Sarah, and that is within that lawsuit. In this lawsuit, they go on to say, a few short days before the death of Ms. Hutchins, Lane Looper, a local camera operator for the production, made safety complaints to producers. On October 16th, Looper told defendant Walters, a representative for the producers, that there had been three unsafe weapons discharges and that the set was, quote, unquote, super unsafe. Defendant Walters responded with callous sarcasm, saying the accidental discharges were quote, unquote, awesome and quote unquote sounded good. And then they include screenshots of what looks like text messages. Um, but it's very hard to tell because of how cropped they are. But it says, and and it's hard for me when lawsuits do this because I want to believe that these things followed in time, but it's you don't know when they are spliced. Cause each, each of the things I'm about to read for those of you just listening are in separate, um, separate boxes shown photographically in this lawsuit. And it says we've now had three accidental discharges. This is super unsafe and wrap should be like 30 to 45, I think. And then it says in what seems to be a text message response, accidental discharge on firearms. Awesome. Sounds good. Um, so it's hard to know more happened in between those texts because it's not just a screenshot of them flowing. But again, if this goes to trial, that's going to come in at trial. And that is not going to go well for production at all. The producers choose not to take the safety complaints by looper seriously, it alleges, and brush the safety concerns under the rug because investigating and addressing these safety concerns would delay production and stretch the production budget. On the morning of Hutchins' tragic death, October 21st, 2021, the safety dangers of the production had reached a crisis point. Local camera crew members were so upset by producers' utter disregard for the safety that they protested the safety conditions by going on strike. Looper put his concerns in writing, telling producers that the Rust film, the reasons for the strike, was, quote, three areas where safety has become a massive issue, unquote. One of these three areas was, quote, safety with weapons. Looper explained, and this looks like a Uh, screenshot from maybe an email. And it says, the second issue I'd like to bring up with regards to safety has to do with weapons. During the filming of gunfights on this job, things are often played very fast and loose. So far, there have been two accidental weapon discharges and one accidental SFX, special effects, explosives that have gone off around the crew between Tate's. I personally suffer from pretty bad tinnitus and the SFX explosion sent my ears ringing until I got home. To be clear, there are no safety meetings these days. There have been no explanations as to what to expect for these shoots. When anyone from production is asked, we are usually met with the same answers about not having enough time to complete the day if we rehearse or that, quote, this is a 21-day shoot, end quote. I worry there was a lot of, we have to keep moving, stop complaining. Um, And again, if that is true, and, and if this is proven in court, I think that's going to fall below industry standards, which is going to be enough for them to get to the negligence standards here. Defendants did nothing, they say, to improve firearm safety in response to Looper's written safety warnings. Defendant Pickle insisted that Looper and the other camera operators going on strike due to safety conditions... Uh, get offset and remove the equipment they had brought for use on set as quickly as possible to avoid any impact in the production schedule. And they um, included what appears to be a screenshot of an email that says, Lane, good morning. Please call myself a row when you and your team arrive at Bonanza Creek. We will coordinate your gear delivery in a way that does not impact the shoot day. Thank you. Next, they talk about the day of the killing of Helena Hutchins, and they go through what happened that day. They say that defendant Armour Gutierrez-Reed was responsible for maintaining the revolver and ammunition well on set and had left the revolver and ammunition out of the safe she maintained for securing firearms on set that she did not verify the revolver or ammunition were safe before the first assistant director halls took the revolver to baldwin and it seems that she from her lawsuit didn't know he had took, taken it to baldwin and she definitely didn't double check it and she didn't know where the weapon was going. It was very odd to me the way that this sequence is also lined out in her lawsuit. It goes on to allege that defendant Hall's never verified the revolver was safe before handing it to Baldwin. I don't know if they're taking that from search warrant information or from third parties or from a statement Hall gave. I'm not sure how they know that, but they're alleging that Hall's never verified it. They say that Baldwin accepted the gun from Hall's rather than the armorer, and that Baldwin never verified the gun was safe before operating, nor did he require the armorer or halls to demonstrate in his presence the gun was safe, which seems to be the most basic onset precaution is anytime you hand a weapon to an actor, if the actor doesn't check it themselves, that the person handing it opens it up, shows it to them, shows them how it's safety check, and then gives it to them. And that seems to be the uh, standard that the actor checks it or the person handing it to them shows them, sometimes two people show them, that the weapon is safe and has only inert rounds. They go on to say that at the lineup at the church, Baldwin sat in the church pew approximately four feet away from Hutchins and then talks, uh, gives the same detail that it gave earlier about how Hutchins was shot and how Sousa was shot. It goes on to say that. That bullet um, discharged from Hutchins body through Sousa's shoulder and then uh, embedded into his back less than two inches from his spine, which was a uh, new information to me. I don't know if it's been mentioned before elsewhere. They say that Hutchins said, I'm hit. And Sousa yelled, ow, that the steadicam operator and gaffer moved quickly to help Hutchins and that defendant Baldwin did not offer help to any of the victims. It's interesting in his interview, he said that he was immediately ushered out by medical personnel, but that his statement in his interview on ABC does not match with Mamie Mitchell's lawsuit with the gaffer, um, the gaffer's lawsuit of how things and now this lawsuit of how things went down right after the shooting occurred. His is kind of the outlier statement that doesn't match with the others. They then get into the counts, count one, negligent, intentional, willful, or reckless misconduct resulting in wrongful death. And they go in to each group of defendants and list the duties. And I will go over those pretty uh, quickly in some, because a lot of them are duplicative. But as to the producers and the production company, it says that they had a duty to provide a reasonably safe production set environment hire, train, and supervise qualified crew, including people to oversee the weapons, including the revolver that killed Ms. Hutchins, to design, establish, adopt, and implement uh, reasonable safety protocols, to make sure that there is training for all of those that are handling firearms and basic gun safety, to ensure that the guns were not loaded and completely empty during lineups for shoots, that there was no live ammunition on set or placed in the guns, To conduct multiple inspections of every handgun handed to an operator or actor to ensure the gun was empty or, if needed for a shoot, only contained blank rounds and no live ammunition. To inspect any weapon handed to an operator to ensure the armor was in exclusive possession of all weapons and ammunition at all times to prevent live ammunition from infiltrating the production set. To ensure all operators of a real revolver, including Baldwin, had adequate training, background, and experience and licensing with such weapons, to reasonably respond to complaints and concerns with regard to safety, to investigate unexpected near misses or discharges of the guns and explosives. And then they go on to say that Defendant Baldwin had a duty to learn gun safety protocols, learn to operate a gun safely, never point a gun at any person, always treat a gun as if it's loaded. Be aware of the people present in the direction where he was pointing a gun. Keep his finger away from the trigger. Not shoot a gun during a lineup for a shoot. Ensure the persons hired as armorers were experts in firearm safety. Accept a weapon for use on set from personnel qualified to store, maintain, inspect, and handle deadly weapons to conduct or observe a visual inspection of the weapon. Never aim a deadly weapon at a cast or crew member unless when required to do so for a scene where cast and crew were adequately protected to ensure that cast and crew were protected against any potential discharge of the weapon, avoid recklessly discharging a weapon. Um, it says that defendants Gutierrez, Reed, and Seth Kinney had a duty to exercise reasonable care in procurement and inventory, storage, inspection, maintenance of all weapons on the production and prevent live ammunition from infiltrating the production. That defendant uh, Zachary had a duty to exercise reasonable care in the supervision of Gutierrez, Reed, and Kinney, and otherwise provide a reasonably safe set environment. That defendant A.D. Halls had a duty to provide a safe production set environment, um, to refrain from delivering deadly weapons to production actors for usage uh, without the necessary background training or experience to do so, to inspect a weapon before transferring it to accurately report the scope, nature, and extent of any visual inspection performed of the weapon before transferring it, to investigate and reasonably respond to complaints and concerns over safety, that all of the defendants, they allege, acted recklessly and intentionally, negligently, and willfully, which goes to just the legal standards here. They say that producers and the production companies negligently intentionally recklessly willfully individually collectively and through their agents and employees committed the following acts and omissions they chose to hire the cheapest crew available rather than hiring training and supervising crew who were qualified they alleged that they knowingly hired wholly unqualified armor to act as the weapons master for a gun heavy western era rust production They chose to require the armorer to split time and working in a second role as assistant prop master. They chose to cut corners and not strictly enforce the industry standard gun safety protocols on set. They chose not to require that all actors be trained in basic gun safety rules. And this brings up something that has been discussed numerous times, whether or not Baldwin accepted training from the armorer, she alleges that he didn't. And it's kind of staggering to me that anyone in this film didn't go through gun training prior to this filming. And it they keep alleging it, and we'll see down the road, but they keep alleging that the actors did not have basic gun safety rules or were not trained prior to this uh, filming. In continuing on with the duties, chose not to require all cast and crew to be protected against the risk of firearms at all times, chose not to require multiple inspections of the weapons handed to an operator, including defendant Baldwin. Chose not to ensure that the armor was in the exclusive possession of the weapons at all times. Chose not to ensure that all operators of the real revolver, including Baldwin, had training, experience, and licensing uh, to handle such weapons. Choose not to investigate or respond to complaints or concerns about the safety on set. They go on to say, in addition to his acts taken as a producer, Baldwin recklessly or willfully committed the following acts and omissions. So this is as an actor, not as a producer. Chose to accept a weapon for use on set from personnel who was not qualified. Chose to handle a real revolver during the lineup of a scene when a dummy or stand in would have been sufficient. Chose not to conduct or observe a visual inspection or loading of the weapon before taking possession of it. Took intentional acts to allow the firing pin of the revolver to hit a bullet and cause the revolver to discharge, including pulling or cocking the hammer and releasing the firing pin. Pointed the gun at Helena Hutchins and the cast and crew of Rust within a dangerous distance and without any personal protection for them. Recklessly caused a deadly weapon to discharge, which they say is a criminal offense in the state of New Mexico. Defendants Gutierrez Reed and Seth Kinney negligently, um, recklessly and willfully did the following. Procured live ammunition and allowed live ammunition to be used on the production of Rust. Failed to inspect each dummy bullet on the set of Rust. Chose not to inspect the weapon that was handed to defendant Baldwin, which was loaded with live ammunition. They go on to say Defendant Gutierrez Reed did not accurately report and disclose the scope, nature, and extent of her visual inspection and misled the cast and crew regarding his inspection by purportedly purportedly saying cold gun. What's interesting to me about this is that all the reports I have seen and all of the, and the Hannah Gutierrez Reed lawsuit says that that was uh, AD Halls that said cold gun, not Hannah Gutierrez Reed. And It uses Gutierrez Reed's name, but then it continues to say his. So this segment's odd for me, but it's in the section where they are talking about Hannah Gutierrez Reed. So it's just an an odd um, disconnect for me in that. They go on to say chose not to adequately train or supervise the cast and crew of the Rust production who are operating or in the presence of firearms. So again, getting to that allegation that there was not training and failed to maintain or monitor uh, the custody of all firearms. They go on to say defendant Zachary negligently, recklessly, et cetera, uh, did not supervise Gutierrez reader, Seth Kinney, the defendant's halls negligently and intentionally recklessly, et cetera, delivered the firearm to defendant Baldwin without possessing the necessary background, Declared the revolver safe without disclosing his failure to fully check the weapon did not inspect the weapon before. Uh, being transferred to Baldwin or witness an inspection, did not report or disclose the scope or nature of his visual inspection before purportedly saying cold gun, did not reasonably investigate or respond to complaints of safety concerns on set. They go on to say utterly disregarded the consequences of their actions and knew or should have known that his acts, his or her acts or omissions were substantially certain to result in the injuries or death of a cast member, including Ms. Hutchins. They go on to say each of defendants' acts or omissions were the direct proximate cause of Helena Hutchins' death. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be contested that she was shot by Alec Baldwin. It's just all of the other things leading up to it. Count two is the loss of consortium count for um, her husband and her son. It goes on to allege that the um, Hutchins and her husband were married for 16 years at the time of her death, that they had a loving and close independent relationship that the loss of consortium arises from that close relationship and the same with her son that the son would have continued to benefit from her love guidance and support it then gets into the prayer for relief asking for compensatory damages for helena for the time between being shot and passing um, for the fear pain and suffering of her after being shot by baldwin and before she died the loss and value and enjoyment of her life the loss of helena hutchins household services the loss of her earnings and earning capacity funeral and burial expenses aggravating circumstances surrounding the wrongful death the loss of love and companionship which is the loss of consortium punitive damages in an amount to be determined at trial pre and post judgment interest costs and such other relief as the court may find appropriate and that is the end of the wrongful death lawsuit i think it is a very well laid out lawsuit it is a very well written and well pled lawsuit i with the amount of companies that are involved in the amount I'm sure of insurance that is involved, I shouldn't be surprised that it didn't resolve prior to being filed. Um, And for some insurance companies, it might've just had to be filed. It's like, we just, this is how we have to go about it. I don't think this will go to trial. I hope that this works to resolve and settle. Maybe we'll know how it settles. Maybe we won't. This should never have happened. And I don't think there's any question about it when you look at, the safety protocols for the industry, a live bullet ended up on a, a movie set where it never should have been. There, there aren't many more facts that you need to know that get you to negligence. But then when you add in everything else that's alleged, uh, unless those things are not going to be proven, you have a, a pattern of production not addressing safety concerns. And that is not going to play well for a jury. Uh, and I don't think it's playing well in the public. I would love to know what your thoughts are on this one. So when I post this up in the Lawner community over on Patreon, and when I share it on the social medias, please let me know what you think of this lawsuit, of this case, and we will see where it goes from here. We're going to, I mean, these suits are going to be getting into answers, which are going to be general denials and preservation of of defenses. And then it will go into discovery and we might not hear a lot about it until the criminal investigation is resolved. And we will see if anyone is charged um, with criminal negligence or intentional acts. I mean, that could happen too. We don't know. And that's really the next step I expect to see from this. We knew that this wrongful death suit would be coming, but I expect that the criminal uh, investigation charges or not charges is the next thing we will see. But who knows? Who knows? All, so much law has happened in the last few weeks. We never know. We never know. So grab, grab a glass. I've got a, a flamingo pink Starbucks cup. That's what we're doing today, and because uh, we need to stay hydrated, mind our business. But with that, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Emily Show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. And um, you know, may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you in the next one, friend.